Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. As you'll soon notice, I didn't host today's conversation myself. Colette Kalenda, a talented design researcher, did. Mixed Methods, at its heart, has always been about building community around research. And what better way to show that than to include as many voices in the conversation as possible? So join us today as Colette chats with Aaron Sedley, a staff UX researcher at Google, to talk about how he is changing the way products are built. If anyone can, it's him. After almost 16 years at Google, Aaron has seen how traditional product metrics fall short when it comes to triangulating the true experience people are having with products. So he wanted a new set of metrics that would get at the heart of what the team was hoping to bring into the world, happiness. Today, we'll hear how he's pulling it off. Today's episode is brought to you by Dscout, a remote research platform that helps you learn from more people more impactfully in less time. Dscout sets you up to do fieldwork from the office by connecting you with participants via their smartphones. Get qualitative studies completed in a matter of days. Head to dscout.com mm to get started. And by UXRConf Anywhere, the world's largest UX research conference now 100% online. Grab a ticket to hear from some of the world's top researchers and participate in unique networking opportunities. If you're a student, someone who's been laid off recently, or just don't have work footing the bill, you can now get a ticket for just 99 bucks. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Triangulating the Truth. Hey, Aaron. So great to chat with you. How are you? Hi, Colette. I'm great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you and where do you work? Sure. I'm Aaron Sedley. I'm a user experience researcher. Uh, I work at Google and uh, have been involved in uh, attitude measurement and stuff we're going to talk about, like happiness tracking, for a while, since uh, 2004 or so there. Awesome. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about some of your survey work? Absolutely. So the surveys were, uh, first of all, I should say, I don't really come from an academic background with regard to survey research. And most of what I've learned over uh, a while now has has come from sort of on the job, but also learning from academics sort of informally. What I started at Google is called happiness tracking surveys. And uh, it's a way just to take a basic contextual uh, frame of surveys and add them to any product so you can measure uh, and understand user satisfaction. My journey into survey research, again, like came originally through political science and I studied international politics in, uh, in school and then worked at a think tank where we looked at public opinion data and the, the intersection between public opinion and foreign policy making. After that, and at that point, I really didn't have an appreciation for sort of the details and methodology of survey research. Later on, I did some brand research and worked for an ad agency that had a brand uh, brand research team. That started to teach me a little more about what good versus bad survey data meant, and also just the power of, of surveys in general, the different things you can do with them to apply it as well to uh, user experience. 
Yes, you've been dealing with survey and attitudinal data for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, and to be fair, I certainly didn't, uh, you know, I, I don't consider myself an innovator in the field of measuring attitudes at all. And, you know, survey research, the foundation has been around for over a century now, and we really sort of stand on the shoulders of giants in the field. But sort of the intersection of survey research and HCI and user experience was something that I was, you know, fortunate to get involved in and sort of be part of a period of experimentation and setting some setting some foundations that are really still yielding fruit and evolving today. Yeah. So how did you get from studying international relations to then doing some brand research to eventually winding up at Google? How did you get to doing the more product-focused survey research that you're doing today? When I was at Google, you know, back in the day, there were not all that many Google products to begin with. There was search and Gmail was launching and Google News and ads. And there was a, a history, and the team I joined was did you know, in-depth uh, survey uh, quarterly or annually on advertisers' levels of satisfaction. And that, of course, being you know, core, uh, core to the business was a really important thing. But as time went, and, and, and we continually sort of iterated and improved uh, on that survey and took it really seriously, but as Google started getting more ambitious and launching different products and going into consumer spaces that previously no one had really thought we would, we, I realized we didn't have any fidelity into understanding our users' attitudes like the way we did with our advertiser base. And at the same time, sort of saw this opportunity of like, well, we have products. Can't we just ask people to take a survey within the product itself? And might that not be reasonably useful and of some quality potentially. So it was this initial idea of, you know, let's try to learn something about our users' attitudes. And it started with really put a little link in the product that said, help us improve, take our survey. And we went from there. And there's more of a history, of course, and happy to get into that as well. Yeah, we're excited to hear about the story behind that. But First, let's define some survey terms. Can you tell us a little bit about this term that you coined at Google, HATS, which stands for Happiness Tracking Surveys? Tell us a little bit about what that is. One of my mentors, Kerry uh, Rodden, who's a, a well-known sort of originator of the quant user experience role and leader in data visualization for, for UX research, she clued me in early on. So if it doesn't have a name, if your project doesn't have a name, it doesn't really exist. So the acronym HATS, which stands for Happiness Tracking Surveys, sort of gave this concept, which I just talked about for two minutes, into a you know a four-letter acronym. And the concept is really breaking down that acronym. There's happiness, there's tracking, and there's a survey. And what is happiness? Well, really broadly, it's more about users' attitudes. It's uh, we, we don't usually aspire to measure how happy people are in their own lives. Uh, again, unless maybe you have like a, a personal wellness app, and, and that's kind of one of the goals of your product. So I don't want people to think that we're focusing on sort of holistic happiness. And there's a lot of great research on kind of happiness levels and, and scales that can be applied there. But for our purposes, we defined happiness as the user's experience with the product and their attitude as a result of that experience. Uh, often we see that as satisfaction, but I can talk a little later about how we're even thinking sort of beyond that. Um, tracking means uh, we do this over time in a consistent way 
uh, so that we can have some basic uh, comparison over time of how users' attitudes are changing. And that lets us see, you know, when we launch improvements, when there's some other uh, change change in the product, change in the user base, uh, even external things that may affect certain products, uh, we can see how attitudes change and understand, you know, how we can serve serve users better. And of course, the survey part, you know, is the way we collect happiness and, and do tracking. And, you know, it's a nice acronym for sort of just getting those two fundamental pieces. How do users feel in a quantitative, measurable, reliable sense, and then monitor that over time? I mean, that's really the basic investment level of HATS. There's a lot more depth we can go into, and I, I know we'll talk about that too. Great. Yeah, so it sounds like there are really two components here. One is happiness or sentiment, and the other part is tracking this with a survey over time. But can you tell us a little bit about what the high-level purpose is for this metric for Google and why it's important? So I think there's two levels to, to think about sort of happiness metrics. One is just how do our users feel? How, you know, for any given product, for a feature, how do they feel after or while interacting with, uh, with that product or feature? Satisfaction is a pretty generalizable construct that we use a lot of the time to measure that, but there could be others. And you know, it's important because a lot of the time we can't tell from behavioral data alone whether a user is really happy or satisfied or frustrated, uh, having trouble, uh, really appreciating their, their experience. A lot of that stuff is implicit and sort of locked into the user's head. Uh, and we use survey research, and in particular, contextual surveys like HATS, to get little bits of information out of the user's head uh, so we explicitly know how satisfied are you, rather than sometimes having to guess at it or not having a good signal at all. So it shines light in an area of user experience where certain quantitative metrics can be hard to establish or hard to validate as being a real happiness signal. And increasingly, we've been you know, thinking about measuring happiness the way we do as a kind of ground truth metric that other analyses can use to validate that they're really measuring whether a user's happy or not. Totally. I think that's something that's so important. As researchers, we think a lot about how happy our, our users are with our product, and it's really cool to be able to measure that in a quantitative and reliable way. Yeah, and it's, again, not always sort of the lowest hanging fruit because uh, it does take a little bit of configuration and engineering investment to get that sort of measurement, but it's not the only way you can do it. And I certainly don't want to give the impression that putting a product within your a survey within your product is always the best uh, approach. And we recognize that, you know, HATS has its place, but it's certainly uh, tied to experiences and not the same as, for example, a, a survey that's retrospective where you're going to email maybe uh, your users and say, hey, think of your experience in the last year uh, and now tell me what you think about the product. Both are really relevant, and it's part of kind of this triangulation, you know, mixed methods uh, view along with qualitative research and behavioral data as well that provides richness and um, real opportunity. Awesome. So with that, let's dive into the story of how you created HATS. Happiness tracking surveys at Google started back in 2006, which is a long time ago. But it's really cool for us to, we can dive through that story of what it's been like for the last 13 plus years, starting with how did this initiative even come to be? This was kind of just an opportunistic, as I mentioned, we were already looking at advertiser satisfaction 
um, but in sort of these big retrospective surveys. And the thing about those is we generally, we had an opt-in to be able to contact those people. And no such opt-in existed for any other Google product. So that was probably one of the sort of forcing functions as I as I think a little more, like what led us to really put in put the survey inside the product. Partially, we had no other way of reaching uh, users from other products, Gmail, Google Maps, Google Search, et cetera. And we knew attitudes were important, at least some of us. Uh, yeah, but the context really was at an engineering-focused and driven company back in 2006, there wasn't full buy-in for doing anything other than really qualitative research and looking at behaviors, uh, looking at the log files. And the concept of getting a quantitative attitudinal measurement for a product was a little bit, again, outside of the advertiser realm. Most of the company just didn't know about that or realize we could, in a scientifically sound way, understand users' attitudes and their satisfaction. So we basically, it was working with small products that had an interest in exploring. We just put a uh, we just put a link in the product that said, help us improve, take our survey. This led to, at the time, a confirmant survey, which you know had a lot of a bunch of questions and dimensions and uh, open text. Um, and that is how hats worked for several years. We were just, again, this was like an unstaffed project that some researchers, myself, Hendrik Muller, others, uh, really sort of drove drove for several years in sort of this lightweight fashion of, okay, just put a link in to your product, try to downsample it to a reasonable percentage of users, engineering friend if you can, and we'll create the survey, gather the data. Down the road, eventually, it, it, it sort of, uh, it gained some steam pretty organically. Uh, and just the idea of incorporating satisfaction and other survey-based metrics into user experiences viewpoint and uh, research into users uh, for a given product, you know, caught on. And sometime around 2012 or so, we really put a team together in search uh, within the search org and created the fully in-product surveys that you probably, you may be familiar with now if you've used a bunch of Google products. The the survey itself is entirely contained within the product um, in most cases. And that required a different, entirely different level of engineering investment and considerations. Essentially, we were designing a a product at that point to gather gather user data. And it was a huge learning experience. And that's kind of been the path that we've uh, evolved on for several years now. And a lot of complexities I won't bore you with as far as engineering across platforms. And but the core really is it's a survey mechanism meant to sample within a product and gather contextual data. This episode is brought to you by UXR Conf Anywhere, happening June 25th and 26th. The conference features an amazing lineup of leading UX researchers who will be discussing topics like how to combat natural memory limitations, run insight sprints, and more. This is the third year of the conference, and as someone who attended the first, it really is one of the best conferences out there. So use the promo code MIXMETHODS, all one word, to get 10% off. Or if you're a student, laid off worker, or just don't have work footing the bill, you can now get a ticket for $99. 
Yeah, can you talk a little bit about why contextual data is important? So we mentioned retrospective surveys versus in-product surveys. What are the differences between those two? And why did you decide to do an in-context or an in-product survey with HATS? Yeah, good question. So we really respect the opportunity to understand what the user feels at the time that they're having an experience. And, you know, surveys can play a role in retrospective uh, assessments of, you know, of experience, but we really hadn't taken the opportunity to understand what you're thinking as you're having the experience and sort of reading your mind, as some engineers might have uh, termed it, because it was kind of mumbo-jumbo to them. But at the same time someone's experiencing a product, what are they feeling? How satisfied are they? What are their goals? What are their intents? Uh, what issues are they having? And just making the differentiation that, honestly, recall bias is a huge issue in survey research in general. Uh, if you ask me you know, how I felt uh, about something from two days ago, I may feel differently, and I, I will have a different sort of perspective on it based on what I remember and maybe what's happened in between than I did at the actual time I was having you know, that particular experience, whether it's commuting to work or having a meal or a meeting. So we wanted to fo focus on the validity of users' attitudes in context and ask them increase over the years. I'll just say like we, we originally started out using hats to measure overall satisfaction with a product. We'd say overall, how satisfied are you with blank? More recently, we've sort of trying to leave those broad assessments to more retrospective surveys and focus hats on, based on your experience today, how satisfied are you with blank? Thinking about your experience today, how satisfied are you? You know, no matter what we ask someone, we can ask them, you know, how, how satisfied are, would you be if the moon was made of cheese? And it'll still have a reflection of whatever the user is doing right then. And if we put it in our product, we should respect that alignment between the user's experience and what constructs we ask about and what sort of data we can get that's really valid and actionable for us. Got it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious along those lines, how did you know that this metric of happiness tracking was successful? I think one of the, the most interesting cases from early in HATS was there was a product called iGoogle way, way back when, and it was a personalized homepage thing. And we had hats on it, and we were tracking uh, sort of week-to-week -week satisfaction. Uh, there was a major redesign uh, of that product, and we saw satisfaction increase by several fold. And that was probably the f at the same time we went into the logs and saw that usage hadn't changed during that period. Uh, essentially, the log showed well, the same number of people are using it after the after the launch, but the attitudinal data showed people were really upset about something. We had totally, you know, redesigned the structure of the page and removed uh, removed some elements that a lot of the loyal users really wanted. And the attitudinal data was essentially a canary for us and said, hey, if we had only been looking at the logs, we would have thought we're rocking on with the, after this redesign. Now, there were other signals as well. We, we really heard it from bloggers and, you know, users, like, what have you done with this product? Which eventually led us to sort of 
publicly saying like, we know you've, you know, we made some changes that, that take some time. And, you know, it was also the sort of the, the outset of some of the work on change aversion that we did. But it was right then when we showed that we could really see that attitudes and behaviors sometimes diverge and give us unique but complementary signals and that we couldn't always trust the success of our products based on looking at users' behavior alone. That's really powerful just to see that users' attitudes are expressed and understood and then taken seriously by product teams to really make changes. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not always, uh, you know, a complete home run. There's a lot of ambiguity. Uh, Certainly there were some cases like the one I talked about that were um, pretty striking and clear. At the same time, you know, the more more we started putting hats into different products and seeing users' reactions and what happens or doesn't happen after we launch a change, it taught us more about sort of making sure that we're focusing on the right constructs and that we're measuring things the right way. And sometimes like a pre-post may not be the most effective way to evaluate a change. Certainly, if you're not uh, experimenting with it ahead of time, you won't really have any advanced indication of what the what users' attitudes might do. So that's where we've incorporated doing A-B experimentation with hats. Uh, in addition to looking at the behavioral effect, we for for a new version of a product, we can evaluate the attitudinal effect. So both it, and that's really the the change on the tracking survey part that I want to emphasize. It's not just sort of a set it and forget it type thing. It really helps if you're actively involved in thinking about specific issues, specific product developments, and how you can measure those in the framework. You know, given the platform that you may be able to ask questions in context to users. Uh, But it's not always the same survey and it may not always be the same metric that you gather to get the most useful data for a specific need. Yeah. Can you explain some of the different variants of happiness tracking that you've used? So it sounds like you have a tracking survey and you've also used it alongside A-B tests. Yes. So the initial version was very much set it and see what happens. And as teams grew a little more sophisticated and and we integrated with uh, different products, experimentation, pre-launch experimentation became an option. And the, there's constantly uh, experiments running uh, in different products that are gathering a lot of behavioral data and usage data, but generally no attitudinal data uh, as part of that. And for some experiments, it's particularly challenging to identify what the impact of a particular uh, UI change or feature addition or deletion may have uh, because there's no clear behavioral effect for it. And that's where the surveys can be super valuable to help disambiguate essentially between version A and version B, which may have the similar behavioral profile, but version B may have a higher satisfaction level than version A. So being able to isolate specific UI changes and product changes, measure their attitudinal impact, and then use that to help inform decision-making and potentially iteration and further experimentation has been one of the more advanced and meaningful uh, and recommended ways that we've approached HATS. Very cool. So we've been talking a bit about triangulating different forms of data. So we've got our survey data. We've also talked about log or behavioral data um, and also some qualitative research as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how this plays into HATS itself and how you've triangulated these different data streams with the HATS data? As researchers, you know, and, and I constantly remind my, myself of this because I've 
become you know, relatively focused on attitude measurement and survey research. But as UX researchers, we have an obligation to, to think broadly beyond our, you know, our, our own sort of areas of expertise. And one of the first things we teach when we do survey research is it's not a hammer and not everything is a nail to be surveyed, essentially. There's a lot of qualitative research that survey research is simply not good at replicating or or substituting for. And a great deal of the time, people will come to me and say, hey, I have this problem. I really want to understand you know, our users and, and understand their motivations, and, um, and we want to do a survey. And I said, whoa, that all sounded good until you sort of matched up a survey with uh, getting deep insight and qualitative context on understanding. That's not what a survey is usually best at and certainly doesn't substitute for real qualitative research. So often the best surveys are informed by a broad and insightful understanding of the users and their issues, which can only be gathered through qualitative research. Now, on the other side of the spectrum are pure quantitative metrics like uh, user behaviors and log files. And I'd say surveys kind of sit in the middle between the qualitative side and, and the quantitative side. And in fact, I tell people often, I'm neither a qualitative researcher nor a quantitative researcher, um, but I kind of play in the space in between and uh, try to connect connect those areas and add add some of this attitudinal measurement stuff to you know, be a little more cohesive in, in how we can approach users. And really, one of the fun things is to be able to link users' attitudes and survey data with their behaviors. And that's, you know, another big piece uh, of HATS is that insight that you can gather by not just understanding what users do, but how they feel about it and potentially why. I'd say the why is really a more qualitative thing, but we can certainly measure with surveys how people feel about doing something and combine that with behavioral paths and, you know, do some basic uh, modeling and correlations to understand what behaviors really correlate highly with someone who's satisfied versus dissatisfied with their product interaction and helping even establish behavioral metrics for happiness that might have otherwise just been assumed or unvalidated. And by seeing the relationship between attitude and behavior, we can often do some really powerful understanding of different of different user actions and whether someone's likely to be happy or unhappy. Fun research studies make for candid, engaged participants. Candid, engaged participants make for truly groundbreaking results. That's why DScout designed a platform that makes research more fun for your participants, your stakeholders, and your research team. DScout connects you with real people through their smartphones, in their context. Your participants give you a window into real life, and you'll come away with rich video data that's easy to analyze and positioned to resonate. Head to dscout.com mm to learn more. It's the triangulation of using really rich qualitative data to fuel the survey and then understanding how the survey can connect to or correlate with any behavioral data metrics. That's really important. Exactly. You said it better than me. And uh, and that's exactly you know what we hope to do is you know foster this multi-method 
uh, and triangulation, an iterative approach. Often we'll learn something from a survey and we'll say, mm, you know, I, I'm not sure actually that was the 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 right construct, or you know, mm, I don't know if we're getting enough sensitivity from this particular scale, and we may be able to do an, another round of measurement and refine things. So I will say, you know, a survey we try to also approach as kind of a living, uh, living and growing research instrument. And one of the good things about the contextual surveys is you can sort of change them and both on the sampling side and the questionnaire side to get specifically what you're looking for within a product or an interaction. So as you work with different teams, I'm imagining different teams have these different needs with hats. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these different investment levels that they take and what kinds of ways they triangulate hats with other kinds of data they might be working with? Yeah, hats, we don't want it to be intimidating to teams. And there are, as we've come up with, kind of three main investment levels that you can approach both the implementation for hats and what you should expect to get out of it. Uh, The first level, the sort of basic investment, is uh, the core of just putting a survey in there and measuring the user's attitudes and letting that track over time. Now, when I say measuring users' attitudes, historically that has been satisfaction. But as I noted earlier, you know, happiness is a broad construct, and so is user satisfaction. And there are sometimes that satisfaction is actually not a targeted enough targeted enough construct uh, for what the product's goals actually are. Uh, if we're trying to you know, it really depends on what your key desired outcome is. If you want users to perceive that a product is very useful to them, you should probably measure how useful you know is this product for you, and not you know how satisfied are you with this product. Uh, if you want to make it seem that the product is very efficient, ask about efficiency. So aligning your core construct, uh, even at this basic investment level, and not assuming that satisfaction is is always sort of the best and most sensitive construct for what your goals are. Investment level two, or medium, uh, is really fleshing out your survey itself to both understand individual user goals and intents. And uh, we talk about that sometimes with the terms uh, critical user journeys, or CUJs, and measuring users' attitudes and experiences within a specific flow or goal and set of actions that the user takes to to achieve that goal. That's part of the sort of medium investment level. The other piece is just doing more of a what we call dimensions of experience. So underneath your top level, let's assume that it is like satisfaction for a case. There may be a bunch of things, uh, other constructs that feed up into that higher level construct. It could be the speed of the product, how easy it is to use, the perceived utility, uh, how reliable it is. You know, th- those are very general ones, and there's a lot of product-specific dimensions. Essentially, level two means that you're trying to understand which of these sub-dimensions of experience are most highly correlated with your high-level experiential construct, and using that to help prioritize what the team does to improve something like satisfaction. If you say, oh, okay, we did this analysis and we just ran some basic correlations and we see that the speed of the product is really highly correlated with satisfaction. Well, we need to go have a conversation with the engineering team and talk about latency. Or maybe it's efficiency and not speed, where people just have to go through a lot of different steps to get what they want. 
let's go talk to the to our designer friends and that really helps teams get beyond just okay we see what satisfaction is doing over time to how do we most efficiently what levers do we use to try to improve satisfaction and then the third and deepest uh, use of hats would be incorporating as i mentioned before with both experimentation and uh, behavioral metrics like log files so getting that uh, multi-method approach to understanding, to being able to see both what users are doing, uh, understanding how they feel about it, and then informing that, of course, with qualitative research that gives you the broader context uh, for users' motivations and potential differences across different types of users gives us a much more you know, holistic view. And in the case of experimentation, may inform specific launches or versions of a product based on how users really feel about it Again, when we may not expect any particular behavioral change. Awesome. I'd love to explore what this means with an example. So uh, I know you've done extensive happiness tracking surveys with Google Drive. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this project and how how the tracking surveys really impacted the product experience? Absolutely. And this one really credit to my colleague, Hendrik Muller, who is part of the Google Drive team. And we sort of worked on this analysis. But really, what we saw... This is going back a ways, and Google Drive has been through a lot of iterations. One of the one of the most meaningful examples, uh, and a very specific one, uh, was about converting uh, Microsoft Word files to Google Docs. Actually, and there's two examples. the The one from Google Docs is actually maybe easier to grok than the than the Google Drive one. But basically, we knew there were issues with users converting Word files into Google Docs. We ran a targeted hat survey that triggered after or after someone had finished the conversion process. So this is kind of a level two investment where you're triggering hats for a specific uh, user goal. And we saw a couple things. A, satisfaction was not very high with converting, but really we kind of knew that already. And it was more about what is going wrong? What issues are you experiencing uh, when you are trying to convert uh, these files or with the result of the converted uh, Word files into docs? There were. This is a good example of how we used open text uh, within Hats. And we just let users tell us in their own words uh, what their problems were, what their dislikes were. Questions very simple. What, if anything... Uh, do you dislike about converting a, a Word file to docs? But the real magic comes in uh, analyzing that data and doing you know, a real sort of content analysis to understand the categories and, and the themes within several hundred responses to that question. The team learned that there were certain things like tables got completely screwed up, other text formatting. Those were a couple off the top of my head uh, that I remembered. But basically, the open text analysis yielded this great sort of histogram uh, or breakdown of, of categories of users' problems that took directly back to the product and eng team and said, here are the things that are most uh, vexing or frustrating users. The team then went and really focused on those specific things like formatting of tables and, and other text, launched a new version, and we kept the same tracking survey in place. And we were able to show that users were much more satisfied with that specific journey or goal within Docs. That was kind of a really actionable and specific case that showed us that that second level of investment focusing on particular user action and what their pain points might be can really be potentially more more prescriptive than just that first investment level, which is kind of just see for your overall product what the 
what attitudes are. So that's an increasing focus for us is to break down the specific key journeys that users do and measure those individually. Yeah, so it sounds like from this example that the survey was able to not only diagnose what pain points users were having, but also then uh, assess whether or not the redesign was more effective in getting users to accomplish those goals. Yes, that was the fun part. It kind of, yeah. And again, we don't we don't think hats is the only solution, but it is something that can both assess where you're at, dimensionalize what the issues are, and inform potential prioritization to improve improve things, and then continue to measure as you've made those improvements uh, to validate that the team has been doing the right thing, or just see what the sensitivity to something like user happiness, user satisfaction is when we make a major change or improvement. So yeah, it's cert- and again, not the only signal we want to use, but if we're being consistent and applying survey research best practices, uh, it's a great tool to have to see th- how things are, help prioritize, and then monitor changes based on our uh, improvements. One of the interesting things that you've mentioned uh, is that you've been able to assess the effects of change aversion. So from this example, could be one of those exact things where moving from an old version of Google Drive to a newer version of Google Drive and how people react to design changes. Can you describe how you figured out that it was actually a change aversion issue rather than any sort of uh, worse experience that was tanking this hats metric? Yeah, this this is this is a really this is where things get researchy in the sense that there there aren't simple answers, and we realized through the course of really several different products and and launches that when users react negatively to a change, they're at least two things potentially going on. One is just that people don't like change and you term that change aversion. And when you kind of rearrange people's furniture while they're out and then they come home and see everything is mixed up, people are going to be a little, you know, uh, out of sorts and it's going to take them some, you know, cognitive effort and acclimation to sort of settle into the new experience. So, but that said, change aversion doesn't explain everything. And there were some interesting cases where we launched something and we had good reason to believe that change aversion was happening. But at the same time, the product itself, the new product itself, as we were learning through research at the time, wasn't meeting uh, certain users' needs. And where we launch a new version of something, but it may not be completely feature with feature parity, or we've taken some task that users had and made it more complicated, that's really not just change aversion, but that's like a functional degradation of the product itself. So understanding that both of those can be at play at the same time, people can, you may have made something purely better objectively, but users will still take some time quite possibly to get used to that new version. But if you've also not only rearranged their furniture, but you know taken away their favorite lounge chair, you should expect more than just a change aversion reaction, but this is part of the sort of the functionality and the core of the product that, that may not be meeting users' needs, despite the fact that, you know, you, you may have launched something new, a very new shiny feature that's super great. Some users may have been, you know, using this kind of little, little appreciated feature, but really relying on it. And if you didn't pay enough attention to that in your launch, you'll hear from it. Very interesting. So hats can measure change aversion and then even further downward spikes if the product isn't performing uh, to what the users actually need. 
Yeah, and there's different, again, teasing out the difference between the change version and the sort of potential degradation of the product is really important. I think there's the tendency for product managers to say, uh, well, we know people are going to be upset when we launch it because that's change aversion. And that's not at all what I intended uh, when I sort of started hammering on this and evangelizing it internally. It's not an excuse for poor product design, but it's an awareness to people's need and sort of inherent forcing of readjusting to something that they were once familiar with and potentially once a master of, and now they've become a novice or newbie in that uh, in that domain again. So just having that empathy for users as we kind of make changes and how we communicate those changes and potentially preview them to users, let them know that changes are coming, letting them play in a sandbox for a while, shift back and forth between old and new versions. Those were some of the things that we realized were really important when just looking at the change of version side. And then when it comes to the feature side, absolutely, you should be using multiple methods, qualitative research, surveys, and beyond, to make sure that users' core needs are still being met by the product. Uh, Even if we have a great redesign that makes things look better, if we added steps or make certain features less discoverable, that's, again, in in the degradation of experience that we want to avoid when possible. So along those lines of triangulation, how do you frame each of those different methods, qualitative research, attitudinal and survey data, and behavioral data to your product teams in order to get them to understand and act on these these kinds of research? I found it helpful to make sure that our stakeholders have, you know, understand the bigger picture of user research and that there's these are not just methods we're using in isolation to tackle, you know, one thing or the other, but really good user research uh, is iterative and triangulates across different data sources. So a lot of product managers and engineers are very familiar with behavioral data and log files. And it's it can be as simple as saying, okay, well, you know the what already, but you don't really know the why or the how people feel. And talking stakeholders through the journey of exploring and understanding users' needs and understanding users themselves and really focusing on the qualitative aspects and what we don't know there from behaviors alone. And then adding on to that, where appropriate, we can actually quantify how, how users feel from a representative representative group of this population. Part of it is really just expanding our stakeholders' minds and making sure they understand that there's often not just one answer, one data source that completely and reliably informs a given decision that they're making. And the art and science of user research is something that we have to advocate sometimes and say, hey, you know, we're trying to get at this complicated issue for you, product stakeholder, and we may need a little time to try a couple different methods and see see how the qualitative jibes with the uh, survey metrics that we gather and how that compares with an experiment that we run and seeing how behaviors are different. So there can be a lot of pressure and time pressure, certainly in a company where there's deadlines for launching and sometimes decisions are made with in a less than optimal set of information. But having those conversations early, aligning stakeholders on what their goals are, and then from their goals, uh, defining sort of what the constructs that are relevant, and then having a discussion around, well, if you really want to measure this, this sort of you know research is appropriate, and then we may connect it with this other sort of data 
if possible, to get a more holistic view. And it really is balancing. You know, we make a lot of trade-offs in industry that our academic colleagues might not need to, but it's that kind of balancing act between what your your launched focused PM wants to do. But given you know, given that they really want to launch something that's good, making sure that they understand how we evaluate sort of good versus problematic may get them to reconsider sort of how they approach their launch plan. And again, the earlier the earlier that we can get in with their sort of with their planning and their evaluative criteria, the better partners we can be throughout the whole product development process. And speaking of launching new products, you've taken hats to international markets as well. And I imagine that's quite a challenge because obviously surveys are written. They're written down in English, in in the U.S. at least. Can you tell us a little bit about how you thought about expanding this methodology into other markets, especially taking into account any cultural differences in anything related to rating or understanding questions, things like that? Cross-cultural research is not something to be taken lightly. And I've been fortunate to work with some both qualitative and quantitative researchers who have a, a lot more background in this area than I do. But the things I've and the things I've been learning from them, um, certainly on the survey side, underscore the importance of translation quality. And given that mostly we use surveys, and I'll talk about some exceptions, but mostly we use surveys with text uh, for the questions and for the answer choices, we can see that depending on the translation in a given language, and some languages are more problematic or have more sort of constraints or other issues than others for certain types of questions and scales. But essentially, the interpretation can vary widely uh, for a given language depending on the translation used. And the first time we translate things may not really be the best translation in terms of keeping with the spirit and the construct of the English source text. So uh, we're... We've, we've been doing a lot of work and working with some specialists in the area to really go deep into the set of questions that we typically ask or often ask, and then in key languages and key language groups, where are the most problematic elements? Uh, we, we actually did what we call a translatability review, even before the translations, to just have some specialists in this area, look at our source text and say, oh, you're trying to use this scale? That concept doesn't really exist in, in our language. Or we, we, you know, we th- people think about it like this. And balancing sort of those unique aspects and constraints uh, of languages with the desire to be as consistent as possible across languages and cultures in our interpretation is a real, is a significant uh, endeavor. The good news is that people that are smarter than me can and more experienced than me in this area uh, are really helping us tease this out and arriving at a set of translations that's been meticulously evaluated and refined and so that we're at least aware where there may be an imperfect match of what those constraints are but in a lot of cases we've done a lot of work already uh, to t- change something for example the midpoint of scales for we often use in English as neither satisfied nor dissatisfied. Translations often come back to us and they just say neither nor or not one nor the other or neutral, for example. So like those are a few variants, none of which precisely conveys the exact same construct as neither satisfied nor dissatisfied. They're all kind of shortcuts. And we really going back and understanding whether including the construct and not just saying neither nor or neither this nor that is really meaningful in a 
given language and culture. That's the level of detail that we're sort of going to. In addition, and I won't talk about this side nearly as much, there's there are cross there are cultural response effects. And again, academics and and colleagues of mine have dove into this much better uh, in much more detail. But there are cultures that are typically collectivist versus individualist in their in the sort of the norms and standards, and that applies also to survey research. So some cultures, uh, J- Japan being a classic collectivist culture, will see more of a midpoint response style, and the, they'll congregate closer to the middle of scales, whereas an individualist culture like Germany will tend to have response effects that congregate more to the extremes uh, of a given scale. Understanding that can be really important. And I, I guess the big takeaway, it, a couple big takeaways. One, don't assume that all of your data across cultures are directly comparable. And that if you have a satisfaction score that's you know 5% higher in one country, it mean that, that it means objectively that users are more satisfied. Not really. Expectations, cultural norms, response styles, the competitive environment may all account for real differences in how people in different countries are evaluating or experiencing your product. So the first thing I would say is don't assume comparability, but at the same time, try to get as close as you can to consistency and high quality in measurement. So even if we're saying don't really compare them, try to apply best practices to the measurement, but don't expect everything to to be like you know a stack rank of satisfaction. It, it gets more complicated than that. Yeah, and one of the ways that you were talking about this is removing the text from the responses um, and using other symbols or other means to communicate that instead. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's an interesting story. Uh, some years ago, a VP, you know, as we were pitching hats to his org and we showed him our standard five-point satisfaction scale, said, why don't you use smiley faces? And this is a while ago. We had never thought about that. And Honestly, I was a little taken aback at the time. I said, well, we are trained to use uh, text labels for every point of our response scales. And there's a lot of research that point that points to higher reliability if you fully label all your points and don't just have points that are like one, two, three, four, five, but rather very dissatisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, et cetera. But our VP challenged us. And it was a great thing because we put together a basic set of smiley faces, emoji, um, five of them is what we use now from, and it also helped us. We were actually somewhat forced into it uh, because we needed to display a scale on mobile uh, that would fit into a small horizontal card, essentially at the bottom of the screen. And we didn't have room for our five uh, five point satisfaction scale text, uh, but we did have room to put these five smileys in along with endpoint labels. Um, so the the first smiley is very dissatisfied, and the smiley to the far right is very satisfied. That at least sets the context and sort of the the construct reemphasizes the construct. Now, uh, fast forward, we've done some research um, specifically on the scaling properties of these smileys. And uh, again, working with researchers that are quantitative specialists and uh, psychometricians, been able to do a couple things with the smileys that were interesting. One is simply basic qualitative, to put a smiley in front of people and say, what, what does this mean or describe this? And we've done that across cultures now just to make sure. And in general, I think the interesting takeaway from there is that whenever we show our satisfied and dissatisfied smileys, we never ever get people saying the word satisfied. Uh, It's always happy or sad or angry 
you know, so to th- the learning there is that our smileys indicate something on the happy, sad dimension, but no one in isolation thinks of it as, oh, that's a satisfied face. We sort of put it in our product surveys with that context, and it seems to be working. But again, happy, sad is kind of the main construct. There was some argument that stars might, you know, there's still argument that stars are a uh, reasonable and kind of easily interpreted way of measuring the same thing. You know, if we show stars to people, there's no sort of natural construct. If you show people three stars, they'll say three stars. There's no clarity on like, what does that really mean, especially out of context? The second piece of research that we did, once we established that sort of people think of this as a a good to bad set of uh, scale for the smileys, we did uh, more traditional scaling research where we said, look at the smiley and give us a number between, put, enter a number between zero and 100, where this smiley, that this smiley represents if zero is the worst and 100 is the best. We were pretty surprised, but delighted that when we showed each of our five smileys to users, that we got pretty close to idea, to equal intervals between each of the smileys, which represents what you want out of a scale. Between each scale point, you want the same uh, perceived interval. And the last thing, to to go back to your question, is that we found that interna- when we did this internationally, adding the text labels to the first and last point uh, didn't improve the scaling properties at all, didn't improve the validity uh, of the experimentation uh, that we did. And it was, as we started talking with more people, you know, they they really got us thinking that maybe the text labels are actually holding us back for internationalization. And maybe, and this still needs more research to do, the smiley faces that we're using are essentially this roughly equally interpreted shortcut. And that when we add things like very translations of a scale, it just gets people a little more confused. It takes them longer to respond and doesn't help our data validity. So we're sort of Explore, uh, testing that further and probably some more experimentation to come. But the concept of using smiley, uh, smiley faces and emoji, uh, especially for cross-cultural research, uh, is something, um, again, partially because of UX constraints, partially because of uh, stakeholders that just suggested things. You know, I can't claim the genius of, of our smiley banner alone at all, but it's an interesting direction and uh, there's a lot more exploration to do there. And surveys are an interesting methodology because from a high level, they seem like an easy way to gather data quickly about our users. But in reality, they can be really tricky to execute or at least execute thoughtfully. And if done incorrectly, they can actually lead to biased and incorrect data. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the pitfalls to watch out for when designing a survey? How much time we got? No, uh, one of the first things that we try to talk about with survey research is understanding the representativeness of your data. In addition to valid, you know, valid and, and reliable and high utility, most surveys, many surveys are intended to re- really represent a population. So the method you use to sample from that population often has a big impact on how representative uh, you can claim your results to be. Typically, we recommend probability-based sampling, or otherwise known as just random sampling. There's a, you know, that's where the sort of the, the statistics of, uh, of sampling and the science uh, of calculating error around a sample from a population are drawn from. And other methods, such as convenience sampling, uh, where you're just grabbing whoever is available uh, or whoever signs up to take surveys, don't promise the same level of rigor uh, in terms of sampling and, and understanding your error. The 
piece related to that is what we call non-response bias. So you may have done a great job and randomly sampled from your population to get your survey data, but it could be that certain types of people uh, were less likely to respond than other types. And that can lead to what we call non-response bias. So if the people that answered your survey answered key questions, you know, whatever the goal of your survey is, if they answered those differently than the people who would have didn't take the survey, but if they had, would have given you a different answer, then you face the potential for non-response bias. The quick summary there is that there's no easy, uh, super efficient way to deal with that. It involves an investigation and understanding the correlates of your high-level metrics to, to see whether potentially weighting your results may improve the quality of the representativeness. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but essentially that's when you want to start talking to your quantitative experts and, and survey quant folks. The the other, beyond representativeness and sampling, we really get into measurement aspects and questionnaire design. Uh, the potential for bias is really strong in a lot of aspects of questionnaire design. Things like uh, order bias, both question order and response order. Actually, I should level up and talk about the sort of the key one that we think about is the concept of satisficing. And this is like a framework that we can uh, use to be really thoughtful about survey design and questionnaire design. Essentially, what satisficing is, is people that spend a less than optimal amount of effort completing a task. Satisficing can be in lots of realms, but in surveys, it's people that are shortcutting some element of the question comprehension and, or response process. Um, we see this when uh, the, the topic of the survey may not be very relevant to people. They don't care very much, and they kind of skim over things. It could be that your survey is too long, and for the first few questions, uh, respondents are, are really focusing, but then you start asking them all sorts of more stuff, and they kind of fade out. So satisficing happens contextually. It's not just some people are satisficers and some people aren't. But what satisficing does, it increases the propensity for all sorts of questionnaire biases to really have an impact in your data. So when it comes to things like uh, the clarity of your questions, the order of your questions, acquiescence bias, whether, you know, we typically say don't ask a yes, no, or true, false question because some people are just more likely to answer yes or true to whatever someone asks them. And that's not a true measurement. That's a bias based on a sort of a personality type. So often we try to rewrite questions and it's a challenge we delightfully take, which is show me a question that's a true, false, or yes, no, or an agreement scale, for example. This is another one of my um, one of the things I evangelize a lot, there's a lot of agree-disagree scales out there. Um, being able to convert that to what we call a construct-specific question and scale uh, is going to yield higher quality data because it takes out both acquiescence bias and really provides a, a much more rooted construct where instead of people saying, agree or disagree, this product is fast, you just say, how fast or slow is this product? from very slow to very fast. Although the temptation exists to put everything on an agree-disagree scale, because then you can just compare your, your data, you're really doing a disservice in terms of the specificity and potential validity of what you're measuring by not doing really construct-specific questions. Questionnaire design, and, and I, I guess the context I'll give to that is like a fascinating area and one that you know I've, again, learned from academics in the field and, and other practitioners. Uh, shout out to John Krosnick at Stanford, who's a real leader in that field. Um, Mick Cooper at the University of Michigan is another 
that has helped us understand uh, web surveys and and different uh, biases depending on how you display a survey, whether you use images in a survey, the visual layout of response options. So this is normally like a full day or half day course, but it's actually that, that we teach both internally and, and at some conferences. But honestly, this is like a semester or even a grad program in questionnaire design and survey quality. But um, it's good to keep in mind the general principles of reliability of validity, reliability, representativeness, um, and questionnaire design biases when um, you know w- when putting together your your research instrument. It's so nice to have cleaner data up front rather than try to make sense of kind of dirty or random data on the back end. Yeah, totally. That's something that's unique about surveys is once you let a question out into the wild, you can't change it. So you're stuck with the data that you get back. So in conclusion, and I know that you have some publicly available resources that we can share in the episode notes of this podcast, but do you have a few take-home tips for researchers who are getting into survey design for themselves? Can they really lean on to ensure that their surveys are high quality? The first thing to focus on is um, we, we typically use a what we call a goals, constructs, questions model. Uh, and if you keep that in mind, it can be really helpful be really clear, and sometimes it takes interviewing your stakeholders multiple times to understand what the exact goals are. Then we move, once the goals are established, then we can talk about constructs, which is like, what is the thing that we're trying to measure or the things? So it could be user happiness. The goal could be make all users happiness. The construct could be, well, we're not measuring their personal happiness, but satisfaction. And then the question, so we go from goals to constructs, which may be satisfaction. The question is how we ask that construct, how we actually measure it. So think about goals to constructs to questions. Keep in mind validity and reliability of your measurements. Keep in mind representativeness of your sampling for your population, and keep in mind all sorts of questionnaire design biases. In particular, I would say acquiescence bias and the general principle of satisficing. When you make a survey too long, too complicated, too irrelevant, people are going to start fudging and not really giving it the full consideration and cognitive effort that you might hope or expect as a researcher. So taking that respondent's perspective and saying, is this survey really relevant? Why should I care? Are these questions like easy to respond to? Is something that we have to force ourselves to do and can be really valuable because a lot of the time as uh, survey creators and researchers, we're so in-depth with what we're uh, trying to measure that we can't see that some things may be really convoluted um, the way that we, we present them to people that don't have all that additional context. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. I've learned a lot about surveys from you in this chat, so we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. It's been great to be with you, Colette. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group. If you aren't already a member, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, Aaron Schroeder, who edited this episode, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.